Hi, this is Tom Field, Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. I'm talking today with Adam Davies, Senior Director of Fair Isaac Advisors Fraud Practice. And the topic today is application fraud. Adam, thanks so much for joining me. Nice to meet you, Tom. How are you? Very well. Adam, to start out with, why don't you take just a moment to tell us a bit about yourself and your role with Fair Isaac Advisors, please. Yeah, thanks for inviting us to speak today. So I've been at FICO for about nine years now, but I've been working in the financial crime, fraud, and security for about 18 years. And the fraud practice uh, at at FICO is uh, a practice that works across um, six or seven different industry verticals and provides clients with best practice approaches to managing the whole range of different financial crime. And uh, we work all around the world. So I think last year alone we worked in about... uh, uh, 28 different countries, so uh, we certainly get around. Well, Adam, to start out with, I'm going to talk a little bit about a recent survey. It showed that for Americans, identity theft is the second most feared crime in 2014, more so even than terrorism, which actually came in third. Why is this the case that identity theft is more feared than terrorism? You know, it's it's an interesting one, but it doesn't surprise me. I mean, our, our identity is more and more available than it ever has been. So um, it's no longer just your your name, your passport, your address. It's it's really everything about you. It's your passwords, your usernames, your PIN numbers, your devices, your accounts, the relationships you have with people. And all of those different data points really represent your almost your digital identity in this day and age. It's all uh, components that can be used to either pretend to be an individual or uh, can be abused to commit fraud. Um, so it, it doesn't surprise me, and especially as you know, consumers are going online a lot more um, and the speed at which you know, we're seeing the, the change in e-commerce and m-commerce, that, that uh, you know, is getting the attention of organized crime. And I don't think there's a day that goes by that we don't hear about some kind of hack or something like a target breach or... Um, you know, these people are heavily out there on the Internet looking at ways to get hold of people's identities. Well, Adam, let's take this back to the topic of application fraud and risk. What are the strategies that you see your clients implementing to help mitigate application fraud? One of the key things, Tom, is, is making sure that we, we understand that there are different types of, of application fraud. Application fraud um, isn't just about people's identities being stolen. There are commonly, you know, two main types, first and, and third party fraud. And, and the main difference between those is whether or not somebody's identity has been compromised in order to commit the fraud. So both of those are, in some respects, a financial crime. Um, one of them is more about identity risk. And the other one's really around collectability risk, where that person is um, pretending to be something that they're, they're not. So some characteristics of that might in, include, you know, skip tracing and straight rollers and bust outs and uh, people that bounce checks and NSFs, people that dispute tr- um, transactions on a credit card, for example. All of those can be some form of first and third party fraud. And so the biggest increase we've really seen over the last five to ten years is that of first-party fraud. Well, I'm glad you talked about the different types of fraud because the follow-up question I have for you is what are the trends that you're seeing around application fraud, both in terms of first and third parties? So there's a a number of trends I can speak to in terms of, I mean, when we look at the statistics in terms of the uh, increases that we're seeing around the world, 
it's quite interesting to see um, the different markets. So, for example, in North America right now, a fraud and identity fraud, I think it was a Javelin report that came out, um, shows that a fraud happens every uh, three seconds in the United States. If you look in, in uh, Europe, sometimes victims of identity fraud, it can take them um, sometimes an average of eight to ten months before the victim of that fraud has, has realized that their identity has been used in some kind of, um, of scam. So I, I think when we're looking around, when we've seen things like EMV come into markets, fraud is displaced, and that's certainly been an increase that we've seen all around in terms of first and third party fraud. But what do we see in terms of trends and what are people doing about it? Um, that's, that's, you know, the first thing is to make sure that we, we take ownership. So there has to be some accountability alignment. And so often third-party fraud may be managed by a fraud department, but first-party fraud is commonly managed as, as bad debt or delinquency. And so, you know, taking a step to centralize the accountability for managing that fraud in one place is certainly, you know, there's a lot of banks organizationally that are doing that, that are looking to define first-party fraud and make sure that they've created the right risk appetites and they've understood how first-party fraud is more prevalent across products where um, people take out a multitude of different financial products and then bust out over a number of years. It's also um, a lot of people have, have recognized that both first and third-party fraud um, varies in type and so whilst there's some of it is, is opportunist in nature, there's also some heavily organized first and third-party fraud where you know you need you need to use technology, you really do need to use analytics, you need to use social entity analysis to try and identify these rings. Um, and also, I think there's been a lot of change in terms of regulation. And so increasingly in, in pockets around the world, there are um, more and more regulations like the Red Flag Act that are helping banks understand what they need to do, both to protect themselves and the customer, but also to make sure that the victims are given the right level of support, etc. And through the process. But I think it really stems, Tom, from trying to manage the risk more centrally uh, in, in a common framework. So frequently we talk about fraud prevention and security in general. We talk about the fear of compromising the customer experience. So in the organizations you deal with, how do you see them balance fraud prevention with at the same time delivering that exceptional customer experience? It's an important factor in today's fraud management. It's not just about being aggressive in trying to catch fraud or preventing fraud. It's about making sure there's the balance. And so, especially as we're coming out of the recession and a lot of banks around the world are starting to put their foot on the gas a little bit more in terms of onboarding new customers, originating new clients. Um, it's all, and, and also, importantly, a lot of um, what we're seeing, a lot of product bundling and cross-selling activities from our, the people within marketing. So it's important that the fraud department really understand where that application is coming from. So is that applicant known to us? Was he known to another part of the bank? Was he even a known target? Did we actually reach out and offer him um, that? So it's really making sure the fraud department have got a great access to the data within their organization to understand the applicant risk, the source. So did the request come into us or did was the request outbound? Was it through some telemarketing? And then really differentiating after that. So using the same framework, we try to understand the level of product risk. Each each product themselves have a different level of risk. And then after that, understanding whether we're really trying to identify this application from a, 
a third-party standpoint or a first-party standpoint or both. So sometimes if we already have a customer on board, we shouldn't be inundating them with the same level of potential controls as a new person who's unknown to us who's asking for risky products. So it's about using the data more wisely and more holistically to understand the source and the applicant and the application risk and the channel risk involved um, with um, the, the, the request from the customer. Adam, a final question for you. Talk to me a little bit about social link analysis and tell me how that is used to mitigate application fraud. So one of the things I mentioned is that as more of our identity is online, it becomes more available to hackers and exploiters and harvesters of this information and people that publish this type of information um, out on websites, etc. So more of that data is out there. But what that also means is um, it leaves you more breadcrumbs in the trail to follow. And so because the data is more connected than it's ever been and we're capturing more of that data than we've ever been able to before, social network analysis allows us to um, identify common uh, entities or common data points um, between people, so the relationships between people, understanding where people have um, lived or the phone numbers they've used or the email addresses. So when we're trying to identify um, financial crime that's of the less of the opportunist but more of the organized side, social network analysis allows us to take a sort of five-pronged approach. It allows us to to, to search and access and bring together disparate data sources to try and identify um, financial crime linkages. Um, it allows us to try and match those, those entities together, so the um, components that connect you. Uh, so it could be a, a device, it could be a date of birth, it could be a street name, it could be a, a part of your number. It allows us then to link those together to show us patterns and show us the organization. So it's much easier when it's visually presented to you than trying to read through tables and tables of data like the matrix um, to find the patterns. And then it allows us to analyze the complexity, if you like. So we, we need to then think about when we have these linkages, what's the rank ordering of those? So which are the networks, which are the groups of people that are connected that are most likely to be fraudulent and the most likely to be connected to each other? And then, um, you know, it allows us then to, to enforce that within our fraud management lifecycle. So whether it's in the prevention or the detection, or even in the investigation process to be able to um, draw together that intelligence. So I think, you know, we, we see in the industry terms like big data, and social network analysis is a, is a sort of a big data play for fraud departments that just allows them to get access to more intelligence and make better, smarter fraud decisions from it. Well, Adam, that's excellent insight. I appreciate your time and your thoughts today. Thank you very much. Thanks for the time. I uh, look forward to speaking to you again in the future. The topic has been application fraud. I've been speaking with Adam Davies, Senior Director with Fair Isaac Advisors Fraud Practice. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.